0: From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we
1: talked to legendary singer and songwriter John Prine about his long career of thought-provoking, humorous, and lasting music. I didn't want a
2: hit. To me, a hit, that's a bookmark in your career. So you're never going to be as good as, as that hit.
0: So if you don't have a hit, you got longevity. Plus, we review new music from singer-songwriter Courtney Barnett, and we remember Scott Hutchison of the band Frightened Rabbit.
1: That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to review the new album from Courtney Barnett, Tell Me How You Really Feel, Jim. But uh, first, singer and songwriter
2: John Prine. I ain't got nobody Hanging around my doorstep Ain't got no loose chain Just a hanging around my jeans If you see somebody Would you send them over my way I could use some help here With a can of pork and beans
1: I That's a little bit a of the song Knockin' on your screen door by singer-songwriter yeah. John Prine off his latest album, yeah. The Tree yeah. of Forgiveness. John Prine has been making music since the late 60s. Uh, You know, the the famous story about John Prine is he started out delivering the mail in Maywood, Illinois. (laughs) And on his route, he was writing these songs, including some stone-cold classics like Sam Stone and Hello in There. This guy wrote a bunch of tunes, finally uh, debuted them at a club, in Chicago, was reviewed by none other than Roger Ebert, the famed film critic. My friend and colleague. Caught a show. It was one of the first big reviews that Prine
0: got. His career took off from there. Greg, uh, you know, the list of people who look up to John Prine, Johnny Cash, Bonnie Raitt, Chris Christopherson, Paul Westerberg, Dwight Yoakam. Oh, yeah, and that guy Bob Dylan. (laughs) You know, those are some of the many admirers. I think that there are artists who are songwriters, songwriters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, after Towns Van Zandt, number two on that list is John Prine. He's worked in the major label system. He started his own indie label at the height of the indie 80s, 1984, Oh Boy Records. Um, You know, John had a really tough battle with cancer in 1998 on the right side of his neck. It left his voice uh, deeper, more gravelly. You'll hear that when we're talking to him. But he's bounced back. He's continuing to make music. He's better than ever, Arguably, welcome to the show, John.
2: Thanks, good to be here.
0: So, John, let's start at the beginning of your career.
1: You know, I mean, you're working as this postal carrier in your 20s, and and during this time, you're writing these amazing, multi-layered songs. How did that work?
2: Not to put down the job of a mailman, no. but once you know that route, there's nothing you're like in a library with no books all day long. <laughs> you got <laughs> you got all this time on your hands to think about stuff. It was a perfect, uh, I, I need to be doing something else when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I can't be thinking that I'm actually a writer and sitting there well, I'm going to write a song today. Only once did I deliver the mail to the wrong street. <laughs> every house on the wrong street. That I, must
0: have been a day that gave you a particularly good song.
2: And I had to go back at 8 o'clock at night and knock on every door oh. and get the mail back. It was very embarrassing for a mailman. <laughs> yeah.
3: When I woke up this morning, things were looking bad. Seemed like total silence was the only friend I had. A bowl of oatmeal tried to stare me down and won. And it was 12 o'clock before I realized I was having
1: no fun. I'm curious too, John, because you got up on stage at the fifth peg in the old time neighborhood where the folk scene was starting to explode, and you played like three songs, I guess. And they blew everybody away. You're writing these masterpieces, like almost like your first public performance, and you're doing songs like "Hello" in there, right? And Sam right. Stone was in there. Uh, m- how many songs did you have to write in your head before you got to a place where you're writing songs of that quality, or was it just
2: pouring not out? Of mi- it? Not many. I yeah, mean, yeah. I started writing when I was fourteen, and then it was totally a hobby. But I found some of those songs when I did my second album, "Diamond in the Rough." and I cut two of the songs I wrote when I was 14 years old. I found a tape of me singing The Frying Pan, Sour Grapes, and Twist and Shout, and I knew that I didn't write Twist and Shout, <laughs> so I cut the other two, and they were the same as the kind of stuff that I was writing at 24.
3: Wow. I don't care if the sun don't shine But it better all people will wonder No oh man if it ever quits raining set the kids are free of thunder see sour grease. You can laugh and stare See sour grease. I don't care.
2: After the army is when I started uh, writing again I, I kind of dropped it, it was just a hobby. And I started writing when I got home from the Army early 68. So 68 and 69 were just about the whole first record.
0: You can't talk about the Chicago folk scene in the 60s and 70s without mentioning Steve Goodman, who was a great songwriter and performer, Uh, you know, City of New Orleans, and also that Cubs song that people around here seem to like. He was a close friend of yours for many years until he died in 84. What did you think of Steve Goodman when you first met him, John?
2: I, he'd already had City New Orleans. I'd heard it on the Midnight Special. Uh, he had a, they played a cassette of Steve. He didn't have a record deal.
3: Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central Monday morning rail There are 15 cars and 15 restless riders Three conductors and 25 sacks of mail.
2: And I had pictured Steve. I didn't meet him yet. I thought he was about six foot two, real skinny guy, with a kind of like a Maynard Krebs sort of guy, right? Uh-huh. That's why I pictured him. So when I first meet him, this guy is five foot nothing. He walks up, and starts poking <laughs> me in the chest, going, "Hey, I'm Steve Goodman. How are you? You know, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're so you're John Prine, you?" Know? and uh, it was immediate. We became yeah. buddies right away
0: i got to explain the cultural reference for everybody younger than me and Greg, Maynard G. Krebs, Dobie Gillis, uh, the uh, archetypal beatnik. Exactly. You know, uh, Gilligan before the island. You know, my perception, I wasn't here, John. You know, my perception of the folk years in Chicago is, uh, in Chicago, there's no BS, right? You can't be fronting, you can't be thinking you're Maynard Krebs or Jack (laughs) Kerouac, right? Yeah. It had to be uh, a little tougher in Chicago to begin... As a folk singer songwriter,
2: it, it was, but um, mainly b- because of my songs, I was pretty much welcomed like right away. Mm-hmm. You know, especially by the old guard like uh, Bob Gibson and Joe Mapes, and mm-hmm. uh, people like that. They all came down to the fifth peg to see me, and the word got around really quick.
3: We had an apartment in the city. And me and Loretta living there well it's been years since the kids had grown
1: a life of their own left us alone you got you know a lot of uh, notice early on roger ebert famously wrote up your your show and Chris Christopherson was in the audience, blown away. You know, it was, there was an immediate sort of you know, hubbub around, around John Prine and this great new folk singer. What sort of pointed you in the direction of, you know, that acoustic guitar and writing those folk songs versus, you know, just doing a rock and roll band in, in, in Chicago in, those, in the late
2: 60s? Well, um, my oldest brother, Dave Prine, who still lives out in Maywood. Dave taught me how to play when I was 14. He was into old-timey music, like New Lost City Ramblers. I'm going where
3: there's no depression, to the lovely land that's free from care. I'll leave this world of toil and trouble. My home's in heaven, and I'm going there.
2: And uh, Dave taught me rhythm guitar so he could practice his fiddle, (laughs) if you've ever been around somebody who's teaching himself how to play the fiddle, you have to be a loved one, otherwise you run. Boy, it's (laughs) brutal. It is painful. He taught me how to play really fast rhythm, and it was all old-timey country. Mm -hmm. So what I maintained, because I was a huge rock and roll fan, if somebody were taught me Chuck Berry how to play the guitar like Chuck Berry's songs, I would be writing in a different, whole different genre. Mm-hmm. But he taught me about folk. He laid a couple of records on me, Carter Family.
4: Out in the cold world and far away from home Somebody boy is wandering alone
2: John heard Elizabeth Cotton, and I learned their style of picking. And I learned about five Carter Family songs, and I started writing songs. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Boom! It was too hard for me to memorize their words, so I wrote my own words to other tunes, and then started writing my own tunes.
1: You know, the other thing that was interesting to me about your early career is there must have been certain amount of a of, of push to like, you know, let's go a little more rock. Let's let's anthem up these songs a little bit. Let's put some rock instrumentation on there. You seem to always resist that impulse to get the, that anthemic quality into, in, into the songs. There was no easy sing-alongs there necessarily in terms of just like a rock song. Right. Your songs always struck me as kind of being emotionally ambiguous. Like you didn't tell the listener how to feel. And you certainly couldn't write a chorus that was going to be shouted up in an arena. like you know? Yeah,
2: well, I didn't want to tell the record companies this at the time. But now that I look back, I've got a pretty good view of what I did now and why I did it, and I didn't want a hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, a hit was, uh, like, that. that's a bookmark in your career. So you're never gonna be as good uh-huh. as, as that hit. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a hit, you got longevity, you know? And I thought I had some the kind of perfect balance to have um, really good uh, stuff coming in from the critics and have an audience that did not care. Well, I, when I started my own record company, people sending in money for the next record. I hadn't read it. I hadn't uh, named it. Mm-hmm. They sent in money and said, whatever you do, send me the next record. Here's 15 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> that, you can't beat that. Yeah. So
3: take it back, take it back. Oh no, you can't say that. All of my friends are not dead. O-N-G, yeah, yeah. do rock and the stone, the black wind.
0: So you were a pioneer in this crowdsourcing uh, notion. They all told me I was crazy when <laughs> I was throwing my career away. 1984, Oh Boy, starts, right? Yes. So in the indie rock world, uh, you know, we had seen Patti Smith uh, release a, an independent single and then it kind of begins to percolate through the punk years. Um but, but what made you think it was a good idea to become uh, a a record company owner investor uh you know in 84 now now everybody has to be independent know, right but you were ahead of the curve even the ones that aren't
2: truly independent right. they, they just come up with a name and then right. sony like finances them. it wasn't because i didn't like the major labels they were more frustrated than me they didn't know how to market me and I always tried to Whatever song I wrote, that would dictate the the production. That's the way. The, if the song was a folk song, do it like a folk song. If it sounds like a rock song, then bring in some electric guitars and uh-huh. drums. And uh, the record company never really tried to change me. They didn't come in and say, "We need this kind of record." They just they didn't. They didn't give me any kind of direction. Matter of fact, and I just thought it was very frustrating for them and me. And uh, I had the the dedicated audience, I could sell my own records to them. Might not be the same numbers, but I know how I make my living. And that's what I based the independent record company on, just to purely put out just my label, my, my records. I wasn't trying to be a, sign a bunch of acts and stuff, you know, Yeah. that may change now. Now that I got some people's attention.
3: You come home late and you come home early. Come on, big, when you're feeling small. You come home straight and you come home curly. Sometimes you don't come home at all.
0: I've read this now in a bunch of interviews you've been doing for the new album. How does one sit down and write a song with Phil Spector? I didn't,
2: it, was, it wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. Uh are you familiar with uh, Robert Hilburn? wrote for the L.A. Sure. Times? Okay. Sure, great rock critic. Yeah, and he was an early champion of my stuff, at least mm-hmm. in the L.A. area. And um, uh, I got to L.A. to do something. I think the record company moved out there. And I ran into Robert Hilburn. and he says, uh, I asked him what he'd been up to. And he says he's trying to write a, a book on Phil Spector, and he's at his house every night interviewing him. I said, really? And he goes, yeah, you want to come with me? And I said, Phil Spector wouldn't know me. And he said he was quoting Donald and Lydia the other night. So hmm. I said, great, I'll come out there. Well, it was like a circus. I mean, it was the Phil Spector show. Mm-hmm. He has two bodyguards. It doesn't matter if he goes to the bathroom or upstairs or downstairs. <laughs> there with him. He's got a little weasel-looking guy, <laughs> and a guy who looked like Chewbacca. And Man. All, all of them are carrying heat. Yeah, including uh, him, including right? Including specter Spectre's got to go. He's got a three-piece suit with two uh, uh, handguns on either uh-huh. side and, and shoulder <laughs> holster. His kids come running down the stairs in their pajamas, and he goes, Who's the king of rock and roll? And they go, oh you, oh, you are, Daddy. Oh, my
0: God.
2: They're trained. <laughs> it, it was pretty much a show. And so four hours later, I say, Well, i got to go. I'm going to go back to my hotel. Phil walks me to the door. We pass by a piano. He sits down hands me an unplugged electric and we write uh, If You Don't Want My Love. So I go home to Chicago, Goodman and I go in the studio, we cut the song. Next time I'm in L.A., I take it out there to play it for Phil before the record comes out.
3: If you don't want my love If you don't want my love If you don't want my love
2: Get him Same deal. He had just finished the Leonard Cohen record. and it hadn't come out yet. He took me into the snooker room, put Leonard Cohen on 11. and The, ball, the, <laughs> the snooker balls were vibrating <laughs> on the table. And that night when I leave, we, we pass by the piano, sit down. 30 minutes we write. God only knows, but I had to uh, add some stuff. I had to write another verse and a bridge for it. But um, I, I will say this. When he sits down and plays, totally no nonsense. Yeah. All of a sudden he becomes, you know...
0: The act is over. The act is totally wrong. over. So,
2: but I heard the act was always on when he was producing. Right. You know, there right. was his show. He'd come in and call a session yeah. like that, you know, and drop 15 I've talked people. to the
0: Ramones about making the record right. with him, and they were scared scared to death. <laughs> uh, you, you sent him the record the recording of God Only Knows uh, in prison
2: yeah we haven't uh, at least through his people Mm -hmm. you know so I haven't heard back but uh, I bet if they send him the charts I bet he's happy to have a record out there
0: Yeah.
1: so you're hanging out with Sam Phillips, you're hanging out with Phil Spector, you're writing a song about do I continue this for another 30 years or whatever, which obviously you decided to do that. But what was the what was the decision making in your own mind? You obviously forged ahead and turned this into, you know, a remarkable
2: career at that point. To me, the way it looks in retrospect, I tried I did just about everything to wreck it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I kept on writing, I kept on going out and singing. And luckily, my audience just followed whatever I went through. They, they came with me, whether they liked it or not. I mean, mm-hmm. I, a lot of people didn't like the Rockabilly thing, the Pink Cadillac. I said, I couldn't have gone on further if I didn't stay true to what I wanted to do at the time.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, And so I'm glad I did uh, what I did at the time. Instead of, otherwise, it would have been nothing. I would have just gone to heck with it.
3: I've been a bad boy, I've been a long gone I've been out there, I never phoned home I never gave you, now I want a little clue where I'd been I've been a bad boy again
0: When we come back, more with our guest John Prine. We'll talk about the origin of some of his greatest songs and he'll tell the story of how he turned down Sony Music to start his own independent label. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I wish you
5: love and happiness I guess I wish you all the best
3: I wish you don't do like I do
1: and Never fall in love with someone like you Welcome For back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, our guest is legendary singer-songwriter John Prine. I mean, through the 70s, Prine was putting out a great album almost every year. Uh, and then things cooled down a little bit in the 80s. Uh, He he had a lot of life changes that came about in the 80s and 90s. He married his wife, Fiona. They've been married now for over 20 years. He became a dad. He battled cancer. Uh, Throughout all this time, he was still... Putting out records at a less prolific pace, but when he did put them out, they always seemed to be uh, one of those. Hey, John Prine's not only still around; he still got it. Mm. And I think one of the classics from that period, from nineteen ninety-one specifically, was the Missing Years, which was produced by the late Howie Epstein of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. So I asked him about that album.
2: What happened was when I went to do the Missing Years, after two albums, and oh boy, somebody approached us with about with a really that deal, like a lot of money, mm. you know, and uh, I hadn't been with a major label since 79 at the time, this was the late 80s, so I tossed it around, you know, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't, what are we going to do, you know, with Oh Boy, and I stopped in at a party, a Sony party in L.A., and Yetnikov, I think, was the head there.
0: <laughs> Legendary record man, Walter Yetico. Yeah,
2: more cocaine than records. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I walk into this party, and one of the vice presidents, at so he slaps me on the back and says, welcome aboard. And at that (laughs) moment, I knew that I never wanted to be on a boat with any of those guys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, let's go, old boy.
1: Your album, Lost Dogs and Mixed Blessings, came out in uh, 95, and I remember you taking that record on tour. Uh, That song, Lake Marie, that was the real showstopper for me. It's a song that starts out kind of uh, in in this kind of humble place, but, you know, it builds to this very gruesome ending. So you're interweaving these different uh, storylines into this one piece of epic music. How'd you come up with that song?
2: I had the foundation for the whole song in my mind and all I had to do was fill in the blanks. Um, I knew the first part had to be an actual part of history.
5: Many years ago, along the Illinois-Wisconsin border, there was this Indian tribe. They found two babies in the woods, white babies. One of them was named Elizabeth. She was the fair of the two, while the smaller and more fragile one was named Marie.
2: And then from there it could just take off, and and like I knew, what can I write about that keeps your feet on the ground and it'd be uh, a romance, and then the romance goes sour, the marriage goes sour.
5: Many years later, we found ourselves in Canada, trying to save our marriage, and perhaps catch a few fish. But whatever came first,
2: and all of a sudden the love turns into violence. And there just two people, unnamed.
5: In the parking lot by the Forest Preserve, the police had found two bodies. Nay, naked bodies. Their faces have been horribly disfigured by some sharp object. Saw it on the news. The TV news. In a black and white
2: video. It was around the time in Chicago when... There was all these terrible murders that going on out in the suburbs, mm-hmm. you know, real gristly stuff that it went from mob deaths to people in the suburbs getting, like, their daughters missing, and, mm-hmm. you know. Casey, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I had in mind, you know, because mm-hmm. the whole thing is in the Midwest. It's like uh, Lake Marie is almost up to Wisconsin at the Twin Lakes, and, um, and the whole thing just, when I finally got the space filled the way I wanted it, I couldn't believe it sounded so good. Mm. And then with a the rock and roll chorus, it was like, uh, I'm still, the song is still real fresh to me. We mm-hmm. end the show uh, with it every night.
5: We were standing, standing by these
3: four waters. Standing by peaceful water. Oh, oh, oh,
1: oh, oh. You know, I wanted to get back to the point about the ambiguity uh, of your a lot of your songs, and I don't mean that as a diss in any way. It's it's to me like a real strength of it is that you don't tell the listener how to feel about a song, and you there's a lot of conflicting emotions and gray areas in your song. Where does that uh, impulse come from? Uh, Because it's a gift. You can't, not everybody can pull that off. It's usually black and white. I'm in love. She broke my heart. I'm really mad. Or I'm really sad, you know. And you've never written a song, or not too many songs like that.
2: I know. But both Steve Goodman and myself always really uh, respected our, our audiences. And to the point of, I think that they, I never tell them, they might want to know from me what the song's about, but it's just what it's about from my point of view. Uh, I never discount th- what the song means to them and boy some of the stories I get you know <laughs> really I mean the entire families the yeah. family, uh, I got a, a letter the other day about this guy's uh, mother and father divorced a long time ago and the only time they talk on the phone mm. is when I put out a new record. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they speak in my lyrics. You
0: know, I, so, I saw you mentioned uh, something about families too in an interview with Pitchfork. Um, the notion that mom passes your music along to her daughter right. and, and fathered to son and and a good buddy of mine who's also a music writer and a union activist said you know that this is the story of my life you know grandfather turned his mother onto her yeah. a, onto you and then I mean, that's like kind of magical I feel like it's a, a real honest way for your music
2: to get around mm-hmm. as opposed to having a radio hit mm-hmm. you know it's uh, almost like campfire songs and they mm-hmm. get passed down You know, it's what folk music is supposed to be about.
0: Yeah, music for folks. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's so much crap laid on it. You know, when people get (laughs) so super serious about it, you know? I know, I know. I I, I really
2: try and avoid in my lyrics being super, super serious because I'm writing about things that are heavy to me. Yeah. I don't I wouldn't ever say they're heavy to somebody else. That's for them to decide.
0: Well, when I was asking earlier about the tough days of, of uh, playing in the folk scene in Chicago, I, I think your your strength is is you're a funny guy. You have a sense of humor. And there's many varieties. Sometimes you're wry and it. sometimes you're just sometimes you're just, you know, knee slapping funny, sometimes you're sarcastic. But
3: your flag cow won't get you into heaven anymore. They're already Overcrowded from your dirty little war Now Jesus don't like killing No matter what the reason's for And your flag to Cal won't get you Into heaven anymore
0: Right? That
2: saved my life sometimes <laughs> Right, in right t- In tough places in the army And when I was growing up out in Mayweather and Melrose Park You know, if you can make a guy laugh Before he punches you It's hard to, for him to make a fist you know. well and
0: there's the Chicago attitude right and it's, it's similar to where I grew up in Jersey you know the worst right. thing you can say about somebody is he thinks who he is right mm-hmm. exactly. Right? You, you can't put on airs in Chicago yeah, yeah.
1: you know that's funny you should say that because I was talking to you a few weeks ago and you were telling me about how you you know you wrote a song with Dan Arbuck and right. I had to John Prine it up and you know, I, I said <laughs> there's no song that can't be improved without a, a pork chop reference to it in hey, it. you hey, know hey. Uh, you put because, a pork yeah. chop in it
2: if I came home would you let me in, find me some pork chops, and forgive my
1: sin. And, yeah. and it's like, Dan must have been a little bit taken aback, because it <laughs> was. was a somewhat serious song, and you kind of put <laughs> yeah. these twists into it, you well,
2: know? we we wrote, uh, this be Pat McLaughlin, uh, who I'm sure you guys are familiar with, mm-hmm. and uh, Dan Arbach, and our good friend David Fergie Ferguson, he's the one that got us all together, Usually I don't co-write with a group of people, like four people, mm-hmm. but we're all buddies. So I thought we were writing for Dan's forthcoming solo records because mm-hmm. I knew he was taking a break from the Black Keys. And I said, sure, I'll come and hang out. And I brought a bag of White Castles over, fed everybody. And we, started, we wrote six songs in two days. Uh-huh. I thought they were for Dan. And when I got ready to record, he had cut two of them. And I saw Boundless Love and the Caribbean of Fools, mm-hmm. and I sang them, and they sounded like me, except mm-hmm. I had to take one verse of Boundless Love, and John printed that about my <laughs> heart being like a
0: washing machine. and Will she fix me pork chops and forgive my sins? Mm-hmm. That washing machine line is one of the best on the new album, which has a, a million of them. I think so, too. It's a real John Frye <laughs> <prime> line. <laughs> so so, so uh, I'm going to just screw it up. Give it to us, John. It's the. It's sometimes my old heart
2: is like a washing machine. It bounces around till my soul comes clean. And when it's clean and hung out to dry, I'm going to make you laugh until you cry. Sometimes my old heart... Like a washing machine It bounces around Till my soul comes clean And when I'm clean And hung out to dry I'm gonna make you laugh Until you cry (laughs) That's beautiful. That's beautiful.
1: And this is the guy that also wrote, I mean, you do write uh, serious songs, I mean, they're heartbreakingly beautiful uh, about people that aren't marginalized and didn't get any attention. The angel from Montgomery, the, uh, the housewife.
3: I am an old woman named after my mother. My old man is another
1: child that's grown old. You know, hello in there, the old couple. You know, nobody was writing about old people back then. I mean, mm-hmm. the counterculture wasn't interested in seventy-year-old people. You know, and and uh, you know, I think about uh, Sam Stone, that devastating line. You know, there's a hole in Daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus died for nothing, I suppose, man. When that lands, you still hear that song, and you just can't. You're just, you're you're just a puddle.
3: There's a hole in Daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose.
1: You know, you being a Christian man, you know, and probably re- growing up around the whole idea of Jesus and, you know, God and a man of faith, whatever, your family, um, that, that's, that's, a, that's a hard line to write, a hard line to sing. Uh, you know, where did that come from in, 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 your, in your young years writing these
2: songs? Well, I was writing about the way GIs were treated when they came back from Vietnam. Which some I saw a thing on the evening news where some guys came back from Vietnam and into San Francisco, and there was a group of protesters and they were spitting on the soldiers. and I thought, hold, oh, this is not right. You know this, there's, there's something wrong with this picture. These guys, they were just going to like fight for their country like their fathers did in World War II, and uh, they might not have liked it, but that's what they were doing, and to blame them for the war instead of these goofs in Washington, D.C., and the generals. So it got me ticked off, and that's how I started. I wanted to write about the soldier, but an anti-war song.
3: Sam Stone's welcome home Didn't last too long He went to work when he'd spent his last night He took to when he got that empty feeling for hundred without overtime.
2: And I wanted to come up with a line that showed how the hopelessness of uh, heroin and and the hopelessness of uh, the war. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what is the most hopeless thing I could think of? And it was Jesus Christ died. For nothing, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, so that got me in trouble in more than one place. Yeah, mm-hmm. Over at the Fifth Peg, when I first sang that song, I remember three big burly guys got up in a big huff and walked out, and a woman was sobbing in the corner, mm-hmm. and some other people laughing, because it was like a nervous mm-hmm. reaction to it, yeah. I'm going down to the greenhouse station, gonna buy a ticket to ride. I'm gonna find that lady with two or three kids and sit down by her side.
1: There's a great John Prine book that came out last year, kind of a scrapbook in some ways of lyrics and pictures. and You know, first, like the fifth page, John, like most guys are like plastering up all their great reviews and the fifth page has got something, this review back from 71 where... This Washington, D.C. critic, I believe, called, the headline is entertaining as a dog bite, I, referring to <laughs> uh, a very condescending review of a John Prine show back when everybody else, Chris Christopherson and Roger Ebert were singing your praises. So not everybody loved your stuff. Uh, and, and
2: where where is that review uh, now? In, in, it's hanging in a frame in my most used bathroom <laughs> in my house. <laughs> and uh, I always I see it all the time. <laughs> entertaining mm. as a dog bite. I thought there was a lot of humor in that particular review. He was actually mad. The reviewer was angry because a, a girl in a cabaret singing like, you know, older songs, wasn't getting anybody, and he really liked the girl's voice. And here, me and Goodman were turning people away. They were taking people to we was the Salador was where we were playing in D.C. They were taking the people we turned away as extras in the. Uh, Movie um, uh, that one about the girl's head twisting around. Oh, exorcist. Uh, exorcist. Yeah. Okay. Ah. The, the, the people that we turned away became extras in the in exorcist. The exorcist. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and this guy was said I scratched my head and burped and had a six pack of beer on a stool and just. And he says every time I did anything, the audience would like go ooh, <laughs> and he hated that. Right? <laughs>
1: The Tree of Forgiveness, your latest album, your first in 13 years of new material, 53,000 in album sales, best debuts from uh, recent albums by Sturgill Simpson, Jason Isbell, is the best from an independent artist of the country charts in modern history, Jim. Man, that's a remarkable stuff, man. You were never an artist who was sort of pointed to the charts. I don't think you ever started your career looking at hits
2: or any anything. No, but 71 to get to get this high on the charts. I was thinking about kind of packing it in, you know, just to go and travel, enjoy myself. But things are going like wildfire.
1: Yeah. Well, your wife forced you to write this album, it sounds like, and uh, now Uh, you're probably pretty uh, glad you did, huh? My
2: wife and my son. Yeah. My son's running the label now. Uh, Al Bonetta passed real suddenly about three years ago. Mm. And uh, Al was, me and Goodman's a longtime manager and business partner. And so my son took over running the label. And my wife took over management, and they forced me into the studio. <laughs> uh-huh. and they, they put me in a hotel suite in Nashville with right. 10 boxes of unfinished lyrics, four guitars, and a ukulele. And I came out with 10 songs a week later.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, the the critical cliche as people review The Tree of Forgiveness, which, as Greg said, is one of your best-selling, you know, is on top of the charts. What a thing to say. And it's getting uh, universally good reviews. But everybody keeps pointing out, mortality's on his mind, mortality's on his mind. You know, it ends with a song when I get to heaven. And then I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka and
2: ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm going to kiss that pretty girl
0: on the tilt of the world. Because this old man is going to town. You know, but but you're 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 talking about mortality in a typically John Prine way. You know, when you get to heaven, you want to smoke a cigarette nine miles long. Because they can't smoke anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and you're gonna have ginger ale and vodka. I mean, if I got,
2: why would I want to go to heaven if I'm gonna stand by the river in a white robe and sing songs that
0: play a harp are no good? (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Now you can do all that stuff and not worry about (laughs) self-destruction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But people keep saying that, especially because it was the first album in 13 years. Uh, Are you unduly, you know, now Leonard Cohen's last album? Clearly, he was ruminating very much oh, definitely on, on yeah. that door you know but yeah, I I don't I don't see you obsessed with that
2: I I had I wrote 10 songs so I could look at my son and my wife and go okay no now I'll go in the studio that, that was just like that <laughs> yeah I was not ready to go in the studio I wanted to wait until I had 10 songs that I'd been working on and working on mm-hmm. you know and then anyway, I said okay I'm ready here's 10 songs as soon as I record them my wife Fiona comes to me and she goes, she said, Jody and I were listening to this, and she said, there's a theme here. I said, it's not Sgt. Pepper's. <laughs> <I said, laughs> Concept album. I said, it's 10 songs. I said, they're, mm-hmm. they're totally unrelated to each other. She goes, no, 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 they're not. You know, she says, there is a thread going through here, and I'm the thread. I said, well, I can't help that. You know? mm-hmm. But I didn't see particularly that I was overly thinking about you know, being somewhere else or laying in a box somewhere.
0: We've been talking to John Prine on Sound Opinions. What an absolute pleasure and an honor, John. Thanks, Jim.
2: Thanks, Greg.
0: As always, we want to hear from you. What
1: effect has John Prine's music had on your life? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. When we come back, we're going to review the latest album from Courtney Barnett. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
0: listening to Sound Opinions and that is the song Nameless Faceless by Courtney Barnett from her second full album Tell Me How You Really Feel. <laughs> I relate to that, Greg. People for some reason say that phrase mm. to me all the time. Courtney Barnett, I think it's no exaggeration to say, at least according to Sound Opinions, is one of the most important artists to emerge in the last decade. She began making music in 2012 in her native Melbourne, Australia. I've got a friend called Emily Ferris Mm -hmm. was her debut EP. Really set the world on fire with a song called Avant Gardener that the British press and Pitchfork in the U.S. named one of the best songs of 2013. Her debut album, Sometimes I Sit and Think, and Sometimes I Just Sit. Came out in 2015. We had Courtney on the show at a, a really special Goose Island Tap Room live event in August of 2016. Now comes album number two. She took a little break last year, uh, which for her meant uh, working with Kurt Vile, the American Garage Rocker, on a a really fun little duet album, a lot of sea lice, a lot of pressure though. What is she going to give us on a second full album? She uh, is answering that question now. We're going to play a track from it. We're going to dive in deep with our reviews. This is a song called City Looks Pretty from Courtney Barnett's Tell Me How You Really Feel on Sound Opinions.
1: That is City Looks Pretty from the new Courtney Barnett album, Tell Me How You Really Feel. Um, You know, that song epitomizes to me what what makes Courtney Barnett such a a wonderful artist. I mean, the hooks keep coming at you. Uh, And at the same time, it's a song that conveys uh, a a lot of uh, tangled emotions. I mean, she... Is one of those artists that you know basically warned us on her debut album, "Put Me on a Pedestal and I'll Only Disappoint You." Yeah, I mean that is a classic Kurt Cobainism if I ever heard one. You know, well, uh, what about don't the song? make me a uh, Popeye. the you know? song
0: title here, "Crippling yeah. Self Doubt"
1: <laughs> and a general
0: lack of self confidence. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah, she owns it. There's a little bit of humor there, but there's also a sense of you know I'm not I'm not into Making these big bloated uh, statements. I'm never going to be the arena rocker you may want to turn me into. Even though she's got skills as a guitar player and she's obviously a gifted songwriter, she likes to write about everyday details about the stuff that people overlook. You know, there's the little details in the song that just sort of grab you. Uh, you know, in that song, um, nameless, faceless, that line about "I hold my keys between my fingers." Yeah, and she's talking, you know, about a serious issue about about the physical danger that women place themselves in almost every day of their lives. And that kind of thing really, really boils it down uh, for you in just a few words. Um, The other thing that's key for me about this album from an emotional standpoint is a sense of empathy about it. Um, There's always a sense of, you know, things aren't going real well in the world right now. Things may not be going real well for you personally, but gather your friends around you. Have the friends around you that you trust and and, and just enjoy them. Uh, you know, that that last song on the album, Sunday Roast, I yeah. love that.
4: Some kind of sweet relief, I hope you never leave.
1: Now, yeah. let's just get together and forget about this really crappy week we've just had by just hanging out together. The other thing about Courtney Barnett, um, she's a great guitar player, but she's not a show-off. No. So you may not say, oh my God, she's a you know the new Hendrix or something like that, even though... If you listen to the way those parts, those riffs are sculpted, those little fills, the way she uh, treats feedback on this record, there's a lot of craft in that guitar playing, a lot of emotion in it, but it's not really show-offy. She's a really, really good songwriter, but so modest that some people may overlook
0: her. I think this is a great record. It's absolutely a great record. It's a, a buy-it-for-you. It's an enthusiastic buy-it-for-me. Um, you know, it, it's no coincidence, I think, that people compare her often to Kurt Cobain mm. uh, because of the underrated guitar playing, both the melodic riffs and then the wonderful squalls of noise that sort of come out unexpectedly, and those stray poetic lines. Um, you know, she's more of a writer. She's finding small details in life. Cobain was sort of a cut-and-paste poet.
4: Dog. Depends on where you're standing.
0: And she throws in four or five per song, and in between she is quoting Margaret Atwood. Men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. This is a more political album in her direct addressing of misogyny uh, at this moment of Me Too and Time's Up. But it's also typical Courtney, existential wonder. Why do I sleep late and waste the day? Uh, You know, well, at least I can get together for a Sunday roast with my friends. Um, You know, it's absolutely uh, the beginning of a brilliant career, these last two albums, Greg. I can't wait until she gives us more in the future.
6: You all you tired human beings. He's got all things a cripple has not you working arms and legs.
1: That is the modern leper from Frightened Rabbit. We're playing it in tribute to the man who wrote that song, Scott Hutchison, uh, who died tragically at the age of 36 uh, while on tour recently. With Scott Hutchison, his songs alluded to the fact that he was going through uh, difficulties in his life. Uh, The the songs were uh, fraught with uh, images of bad breakups, romantic travail, uh, you know, with an undertow of depression uh... scott was suffering from depression all his life and even though he didn't make a big deal about it it was clearly an issue for him and for his bandmates, specifically his brother grant i go back to uh... the interview we did with scott and grant Mm. when they came to sound opinion shortly after their breakthrough album came out in two thousand eight the midnight organ fight that was the record that really put them on the map for a wider audience outside of their native scotland and that record was basically about a really bad breakup that Scott had just gone through. I remember we turned to Grant, his brother, who was sitting there in the studio with them. They were doing a stripped-down acoustic kind of set. And we said, what, did you, what was going through your head mm-hmm. when you were seeing these lyrics and these songs that your brother was writing? And he said, I was really worried about him." And he said there was a specific song on that record which essentially uh, talks about the way that Scott eventually died you know, he threw himself into a river, apparently. No. And we don't know the full details of it, but the the parallels are pretty uncanny and pretty tragic. It needs to be said that Scott Hutchison was a uh, an important songwriter for his era. The, the idea that Scotland was a repository for this anthemic Misery Indie, <laughs> as he called <laughs>
4: That's it. What he they asked.
1: wrote anthemic songs, they were about heartbreak, they were about tragic outcomes to relationships, and everybody could sing along with them and, and somehow feel better. It was almost a cathartic experience. That's what Frightened uh, Rabbit gave to us in, in their very short but well-respected career. I want to play a song in tribute to Scott Hutchison uh, from Frightened Rabbit that came from that Sound Opinions appearance that they made in 2009. It's called "Poke." It's a stripped-down acoustic song, and I think it gets to the heart of, of a lot of what Scott did as a songwriter. Here is "Poke" from Frightened Rabbit on Sound Opinions.
6: Poke at my iris Why can't I cry about this? Maybe there is something that you know That I don't We adopt a brand new language Communicate through pursed lips And you try not to put on Any sexy clothes or graces I might never catch a mouse And present it in my mouth to make you feel you with someone who deserves to be with you But there's one thing we've got going And it's the only thing worth knowing It's got lots to do with magnets and the pull of the moon Why won't our love keel over as it chokes on a bone And we can mourn its passing and then bury it in snow
0: That is Poke by Frightened Rabbit, live on Sound Opinions, uh, in tribute to Scott Hutchison, dead at the age of 36. Greg, my lasting memory is, yes, this was a man in pain, but uh, there was joy when he was Mm. making music with his brother. It was, the word you said, cathartic. What do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, we're giving the drummer some. We're going to talk about the role of drummers in rock music.
0: As always, Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800.
3: You never call on name.
5: messages.
7: Hey, it's Mike calling from Chicago. Um, I just got done listening to the horses episode and uh, I didn't think I was going to have anything to add to the conversation, but uh, I just entered my mind the Sonic Youth song,
0: Bull in the Heather. You know, at first listen, it doesn't really seem to have much to do with uh,
7: horses, but I remember the story that Sonic Youth became friends with Pavement around the mid-90s uh, when this uh, song came out and um, Bob Nasanovich from uh, Pavement is I guess is a famous horse racing fan and uh, apparently the uh, title name of the song is From a Horse so um, give a listen it's still one of my favorites from that time Thanks, love the show
3: Betting on the boy heather.
7: Hey guys, my name is Mickey. I'm calling from San Francisco. Um, you did the episode on Liz Fair and the 25-year anniversary of Exile and I Couldn't believe, first of all, that it had been 25 years. A little alarming, but I remembered when I first heard that al- uh, album. I think I was about 19, and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe there was a woman singing like that, speaking like that, playing the guitar like that.
4: I didn't know where I was at first, just that I woke up in your arms. And almost immediately I felt sorry because I didn't think this would happen again. No matter what I was thrilled
7: and I thought I can relate, could relate to this woman. I knew a lot of people who could too, and we just got such a kick out of that record and it made me listen to it again and I hadn't listened to it in so long and I just it's timeless and I remembered how much I loved it thanks
4: guys bye
7: Jim and Greg this is Brad calling from Washington D.C. Uh, with a buried Treasure suggestion a band from Seattle called Versing, uh, and they, introduced a, they had a record that came out at the end of 2017 with the bold name for a band from Seattle, Nirvana. album that really combines a whole range of the indie uh, rock, and grunge, and just any guitar-driven rock that's come out of the Northwest—from Modest Mouse to Car Seat Headrest to obviously the namesake Nirvana—captures uh, a whole range of sounds and really is uh, some exciting stuff. Definitely deserves a shout out as a buried treasure. Thanks. My own heart. Hey, this is Jeff in Atlanta, Georgia. I would like to nominate the album The Underside of Power by Algiers as my buried treasure. It, in my opinion, was one of the best albums released last year. Uh, It's a very crazy mix of R&B, gospel, soul, goth, industrial, post-punk, and a little bit of hip-hop thrown in there. Uh,
0: thanks for what you do. Cheers.
7: No more messages.
1: To share your opinions on sound opinions call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.